to enter that rest. So I'll walk you through it to hopefully show you how it all fits together. But it would be helpful if you keep your Bibles open if we do that. If you uh, have been here last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. And uh, I hope that you're already getting a good feel for the book. Uh, This is a book that encourages us to stay with Jesus, to stick with Him, to not turn away from Him, not to abandon Him, no matter what the internal pressures like temptations or guilt uh, or external pressures like persecution and peer pressure may be. We are to stick with Him because He is simply better than any other alternative. Uh, The author kind of goes back and forth between the kind of the the sunny days of pointing to Jesus and then the gloomy days of pointing to us. So this is a gloomy day, gloomy Sunday today. We have another warning in in our text. And the idea here is as we see Jesus for who he is, so there's the spotlight is is shining on him, we are to be drawn to him and we are to stick with him. And then the spotlight turns on us and we are to consider where our hearts are, if we are really following him, if we are remaining faithful to him or considering turning away from him. So that's the rhythm of the book, and we've hopefully already seen that. So we have another warning, another gloomy day in the book of Hebrews that seems to correspond to the weather outside very well. Uh, My hope is that as we kind of see the gloom, we would also not forget that that the clouds part and, and Jesus shines brightly, and so we will see the gospel as well. But the emphasis of this text is on considering our hearts, and seeing whether we are following Jesus. This is the second warning. There's, I think, five in the book of Hebrews. This is the second warning that we're, we're looking at. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about warnings again, just so we get a better perspective on it, and then we'll get into the text itself. When you hear a warning in Scripture, and specifically in the book of Hebrews, we have to take a step back and try not to bring the questions that we might have to this text. And the question we typically have, and many of us have considered that, is, is it directed towards those who are eternally secure in Christ, and thus there's a possibility of a true Christian falling away? Or is it talking to kind of pretend Christians that are never going to be in Christ anyway, and thus it seems a little irrelevant to us? Those are not the questions that the text is dealing with. We have to be very careful not to bring our biases into the text. What the text does is it simply issues a warning to a mixed audience. And so it's going out to everybody. So if you're an unbeliever, this is a warning to you. Don't ignore Christ. Come to Him now. If you're a believer, this is a warning to you to stick with Christ. Continue to follow Him. If you are a pretend believer in church and you're going through the motions, but you're not really with Christ, again, this is a warning for you to consider Jesus differently and commit to Him by faith. So these warnings apply to all sorts of groups, and it certainly applies to everybody present here. These warnings are urgent. They are to to grab our attention and to make us change. And so as we look at it, get away from those metaphysical questions, okay? And and make these things very practical for your life. Hear what what the Lord is saying to you today and respond in faith as you should to God's Word. So that's what we're dealing with. Let's take a few minutes just to work through the text together before we consider how it's relevant for us today. So open your Bibles, keep them open. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. This is a direct quote from Psalm 95, the latter part of Psalm 95 that that Ben read for us as a call to worship. 
Notice that he begins by saying that the Holy Spirit says, so the author of Hebrews clearly thinks that, that the Scriptures are inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, and God speaks through His Word. And then you have this quote of uh, four verses from Psalm 95, and this relates to what happened to the wilderness generation of Israelites who left Egypt, were redeemed by God through all these miracles, seas parted, right? The Egyptian army drowns, all that happens, the plagues. They're finally in the wilderness about to enter the land of Canaan, the land that God promised they would have, they would dwell securely in and peacefully and have prosperity and freedom from slavery. So they're about to enter that land. They send in the, the spies. The 12 spies go in. They return with a report. And then Israel has a choice. Are they going to trust God and go into the land? Or are they going to pull back in fear? And you can read about it in Numbers 14. And what happens is that that generation, the generation that was freed from Egypt, decides not to enter the land. They're scared. They're scared that the people are large and powerful and strong and there are big cities and there are armies there and that their children and their wives will fall prey. They are afraid that they're going to lose battles and they are ready to go back to Egypt. This is an expression of unbelief. And so David, in the next few verses, 12 through 19, is using that example in the psalm to talk to his generation now, this is King David. They're already in the land under the kingship of David. They're in the land, and David says, Remember what your ancestors did. Remember the first generation that did not enter the land ended up being in the wilderness for 40 years. They all died, and only their children entered the land. Remember what they did. There's an example for us. They responded to God's word in unbelief, and God, in His wrath, decided not to let them enter into the land. So they all died outside of the land, except for a couple of people like Joshua and Caleb, the original spies who wanted to go in to Canaan. And so what David does is he, he takes that and applies it to his generation. And what the author of Hebrews does, following David's example, is applies it to our generation, to us in 12 and 9 through 19. And here's the warning, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The warning is that we too, the Hebrews generation, our generation, David's generation, any generation, we too might have an unbelieving heart. And that in response to God's promise, we too might say we are afraid We won't trust you. We won't go. And so there's a real possibility that we too will not enter the rest that God offers. This is a warning to all Christians. This is a warning to us this morning. Where God says, take care. Watch out. Watch your heart. Examine your heart. Because maybe you have the same unbelieving heart that the wilderness generation had. What's the antidote to that? What's the remedy? Exhort one another every day, daily, so that no one is hardened by sin. Sin has that effect. There's a potential of being deceived and hardened by sin. And so he says, remember God's promise. Tell each other about God's promise. Encourage each other. Exhort each other. Remind each other that we are to respond to God's promise in faith. 
Okay, now we're getting into the fourth chapter. And here is the promise that is still available to us. So you see kind of the expansion of that. The wilderness generation, David's generation, the Hebrews generation. Now he makes it very clear that all of this is applicable to all of us. God's rest has been offered since the foundation of the world and including our time today. However, that offer of rest, it's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough just to hear the good news that God is offering us rest. We must respond to it. We must respond in faith if we are to enter into God's rest. Now, this mention of of creation, um, and this is verse 4, God saying that, that He is resting on the seventh day after all His works of creation. That elevates this idea of rest. Now, we're not just talking about Canaan. There's something else at, place, at play here. There's something bigger happening. There's something bigger that God is offering to us. And yet, that big promise, and we'll, we'll discover what it is, that big promise has an urgency of today. It says, today, we need to respond. Today, God is offering to us. From eternity, but today, that promise is coming to us. Now, in verse 8, there's an interesting, subtle hint at what God is talking about. In verse 8, you see the name Joshua, if you're using the ESV or any other modern translation, it probably has Joshua in there. In the old King James Version, it says Jesus. So if any of you are using the, the King James Version this morning, instead of Joshua, it says Jesus. It says, for if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The reality is that it's the same word. Joshua and Jesus is, looks and sounds exactly the same in Greek. So it's an interpretive decision. And in context, it does clearly speak about Joshua who brought them into the land of Canaan. But the hint is that there's another Joshua, there's another Jesus, who's bringing us into even a greater land of promise and rest. Now, the whole book is about Jesus. Every week we talk about how Jesus is better. This is just a reminder for us. A reminder for us we're still talking about Jesus, who's going to lead us into this ultimate rest. Well, our passage ends with verses 11 and 13 in... Uh, in the book of, in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Um, I'll deal with it a little bit later in more detail, but let me just say this is a terrifying passage. Because of what it tells us is that the Word of God came to us, came to the wilderness generation, it came to David's generation, it came to the Hebrews generation, and it's coming to us today with all the urgency that it brings. And if we do not respond to that word in faith, it becomes a sword to us. It becomes an, a, a means of judgment for us. Now, what happened in the wilderness, and, and you can look up in Numbers 14.3, the Israelites respond to the report of the spies, and they're, they're basically saying, we're afraid of the sword. We don't want to fall by the sword of the Canaanites. This is in the background of this, this passage. And the author of Hebrews says, if you don't want to fall by the sword of the Canaanites, you're going to fall by the sword of God's word. Because you have rejected God's promise, and God in his wrath said, you will not enter my rest. So this is part of the warning. This is part of the same context. And we need to be careful not to pull out verses like this out of context. And we'll, we'll deal with that as we go on. But there's a judgment feel to that passage that is often very 
used in a very encouraging way uh, by us. Okay, that's the flow of our passage. Now, I'd like to make just two points as we apply it and as we dig deeper into the main themes of our text. Number one, rest is offered in the Word of God. Rest is offered to us in the Word of God. And number two, rest is accepted and experienced by faith in Jesus. It is offered in the Word of God. It is experienced by faith in Jesus. Now let's talk about rest. Because again and again in this passage, we read that God offers rest to us. In His Word, He says, there's rest available to you. Sabbath rest remains for us. He is inviting people into the land of rest. God promises rest for us. It's considered to be good news, the gospel to us that He offers. But what is He offering exactly? What is rest? Let's try to figure out what rest means. Now, Psalm 95 refers to the Israelites in the wilderness. And the offer of rest for them meant the land. It meant the land of Canaan. It was a place of rest. Remember, they were rescued from slavery. These oppressed, hurting, tired people were promised a completely new existence in a different land. God is saying, you are now a slave in Egypt. But I will give you a land in which you can no longer, you, you no longer need to be a slave. You can rule over that land. You will have prosperity and peace and you will work your own land and you will have harvest and you will have your own cattle and you will, you will have prosperity. You will have your own kingdom. You will have your own king. All of that is offered in this land. So the land is what they want. The land is the place of rest. But David is using this example to talk to his own generation, to his own kingdom, that are already, they're already in the land. And so the question is, if they've already appropriated the rest that God promised to them that is connected to the land, why is David warning them against hardening in their, heart, their hearts and not entering the rest? What is the rest that David is talking about? Well, it's clear if you read the first half of Psalm 95, which we did. This is how the psalm starts. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. The context is worship. David is calling his people into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. He's telling them, listen, the previous generations, the generation in the wilderness, refused to follow God's promise and they forfeited their right to the land. So they missed out on the rest in the land. He says, don't miss out on the rest of God's presence, on the rest in God's presence and in the worship of God. This is a worship song. But with it comes a warning that if you don't respond in faith to God's call to come to Him, to be in His presence, to worship Him, you will not enter His rest. So that's the connection. Canaan to the tabernacle. In fact, it's interesting that David, who had the tabernacle in Jerusalem, who wanted to build a temple, and the Lord said, you cannot build a temple for me. I will have your son Solomon, a man of peace, a man of rest, a man who is not entangled in warfare. 
He will build a permanent temple for me. David wasn't able to build a temple. But David longs for that restful, peaceful presence of the Lord in the sanctuary. But, again, if this is all there is, right, that's been fulfilled. They had the temple. People worshipped. And this is where we get to this idea of a Sabbath. Notice how God calls us into His rest. It's not just a generic rest. The Lord says, I am offering to you my rest. You will not enter my rest. Well, what is God's rest? And, of course, we have a reference to Genesis where God said God created for six days and then God rested from His works. And that became an ordinance to God's people to rest on the seventh day, to rejoice in what God has done and to rest from our works because God rested from His works. And so part of this idea of rest includes this resting from your works. It includes what God did after He created. And by the way, this is not inactivity necessarily. This is God looking at what He did and resting in His work, calling it good, enjoying it, delighting in it, celebrating what He has done. This is God's rest. Him being able to say, I have created this. This is good. I like it. I am enjoying this. I am resting from my work. This is the kind of rest we are invited into. When this offer of rest is extended to us, it's given to us as a way to come into a relationship with God. God's rest is a rest of satisfaction and joy. And so the call for us is to come into my satisfaction, come into my joy, God says. Rejoice with me. Be satisfied with me. Let me delight in you. Let me enjoy you. Let's restore this perfect relationship between creation and Creator so the Creator can rest and enjoy His creation. So now we're starting to get this idea there's an ultimate rest that is promised here. It's not just the land. It's not just our experience of God's presence and worship. Those are good things. But there's something much greater. What's promised here is that we can stand before God and be accepted by Him and be delighted in by Him and be rejoiced over by Him. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, I feel like pretty much every Sunday I can probably quote something from The Weight of Glory. So I have this quote this week. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes this, this ultimate divine quality rest. He says, In the end... That face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. So listen to the logic of Lewis. He's saying ultimately we're all going to stand before God And we will either enter into His rest where He will say, I rejoice over you. You are completely accepted. I'm delighting in you as part of my creation. Or we're not going to enter His rest and God is going to reject us. And He's going to say, you don't belong in my rest. You don't belong in my relationship with you. Lewis goes on to say, It is written that we shall stand before Him, shall appear, shall be inspected. 
The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work of a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. What Lewis is saying is that there's a real possibility. In fact, there's a promise of God that when some of us stand before God, He's going to fully embrace us. We're going to become part of His rest, an ingredient in His happiness. Meaning we're going to add to God feeling happy. To add to God feeling restful. This is us entering His rest. Being fully integrated into a relationship with Him. Now, that ultimately is still to happen. That's a promise. And Lewis says, this is almost unimaginable. That some of us, and he says, really anybody who chooses could somehow experience that. We could please God. We could love Him. We can delight in Him. He can delight in us. We can be glorified in some way and even praised by Him. That's the promise of His rest. We can be loved and delighted in By God, we can become part of God's Sabbath. We can rest in His glory. Now, this is pushing the boundaries of our imagination. And even if we can imagine that, our hearts can barely keep up with that. And so the question is, how? If I'm honest with myself, what I should expect is incurable shame. What God is promising to me is inexpressible glory. How do I get the glory? How do I enter the rest? What happened? What can I claim? What can I bring to God that can transfer me from the category of shame to glory? What should I say when I stand before God? What claim do I have on His rest? How is it possible? Well... Remember, this is the Word of God that brings that promise to us, that the Word of God that promises rest to us. But the Word of God is not only a verbal thing. It's not only something we read in Scripture or was proclaimed by the prophets. In fact, the Word of God, Scripture tells us, is a person. So all these promises of Canaan, God's presence in the temple, the enjoyment of God, find their culmination in a person who comes... Word incarnate, God's message personified, who now comes into our world, and he says, I am the promise. I am the promise of rest. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus is, of course, that person. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, a familiar passage to many of us. But read that passage in light of this theme, the biblical theme of rest that culminates in Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember, 
slavery in Egypt in the background, the wandering, weary, tired, oppressed people in the background, the promise of God of this inexpressible rest in His presence and worship, and more so on the judgment day when He fully embraces you. All of that is in the background. And Jesus says, I am the person that will give you rest. Through me, you get this rest. You can learn from me how to rest. You can take my yoke upon you because it's a light yoke. This will not make you weary. It will not make you tired. In fact, it will lead you into God's Sabbath rest. Through Christ, we can experience God's Sabbath rest. Now, go with me to Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, and I'll make a connection to what Jesus did with the kind of rest He offers. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for us. There remains the promise, that offer of rest for us. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So somehow, when we appear before God and God fully accepts us, He is not accepting us based on our works. Because if, as we enter His rest, we rest from our works. Now, presumably, there's something else happening. There are other works that are happening that transfer us from shame to glory. In other words, Jesus, the personified word, the personified promise, comes and does something that allows us to rest from our works and enjoy God and be enjoyed by Him forever. So you follow the logic. Jesus did something. And when He did that, that allowed me to stop doing something, to stop doing anything to earn God's joy and God's rest. And in fact, through Him, by learning what He did, by following Him, by taking on His yoke, I find rest that is not based on my works. And so I can rest from my works as God rested from His works when He created the world. Now, what did Jesus do? Let me tie this theme together. Jesus experienced ultimate restlessness on the cross. This is an amazing thing to, to ponder and to think through. The person who only knew Sabbath, who only knew this deep rest of God, complete satisfaction in each other, in the Trinity. Complete rest at delighting at the creation and His works. person perfectly in control. No pressures, no outside pressures on Him. This is why we can't rest. Pressure. No pressure on Jesus. This person decides to give all of that up, leaves the Sabbath rest, comes into our chaotic world, and lives the kind of life that we should live if we rested in God. Perfectly obedient, perfectly trusting God. There's nothing you can say that Jesus did wrong. He's always perfectly trusted God. Perfect faith. Did everything the Father commanded Him. Spoke only what the Father spoke to Him. And yet, at the end of His life, He goes to the cross where He, ex when, where he experiences the restlessness of the sinner. I wonder... If, if you read the Passion accounts in, in the Gospels, if it strikes you 
how much agony Jesus experienced. He was not calm. Now, he was calm the rest of his life. I mean, even, even in front of Pilate, even in front of the, all the accusers, he, he seemed to have a calm about it and peace about it. But he, when he goes on the cross, it seems like all of that is done. And there's the writhing in pain. There's the calling out to God. What did he experience? He experienced the ultimate unrest, the ultimate restlessness, which we call hell. How is hell described in Scripture? Those are symbolic, metaphorical language, right? But it tells us what it really is. The gnashing of teeth and weeping in outer darkness. It's terrifying. Terrifying because there is no rest. There's no good outcome. You're not looking forward to anything. You're crying and you're gnashing your teeth because you're still working. See, there's no release. There's no peace. There's no rest. You're still trying. You're still putting effort forward. That's why you're gnashing your teeth. And yet there's no resolution. Eternally, there's no resolution. This is what Jesus experienced on the cross. And he did that not for himself because he didn't need to experience that. He was perfectly at peace with the Father, perfectly at peace with his creation. And yet he experienced that restlessness for us in our place on our behalf. Why? So he could then say, I will give you rest. Dies on our behalf, goes through the chaos of sin so he can offer to us this eternal, ultimate Sabbath rest of God where God can rejoice over us. You know, those passages in Scripture where it talks, talks about God rejoicing over us, that we are His glory, that He dances over us in Zephaniah. I mean, those, that kind of language. How is that possible? It's possible because somebody did something on our behalf to give us that rest, to usher us into that kind of relationship with God, where God can rejoice over us, where God can sing and praise us and see us as part of His glory. That's what Jesus did. And He offers this rest to us. The Word of God in Jesus comes to us today, today, right now, with all its urgency, and it comes to us and says, come into my rest. Enter into my rest. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of rest? I'm not talking, like, we, we like to rest, you know. In our culture, I feel like rest a lot. Um, maybe not as much as some other cultures, but still seems like a lot. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a good night's sleep. That, that is a beautiful thing, and we should all pursue that. Go take a nap this afternoon. That's a, that's a good thing. But I'm talking about something much bigger. I'm talking about the ability to take a nap anytime you want. And saying, I have no pressures on me that will keep me from sleeping. I'm talking about this, the stability of your soul that is able to rest even now, immediately now, because of what Jesus did for you. And feeling that your destiny is settled to such an extent that whatever your circumstances are today, whatever your anxiety and stress is today, and those are real things, they cannot compare. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs talks about contentment and 
and peace. And, and he has this, this, this beautiful quote of saying that, um, that we can have all of that stress in the suburbs of the soul, but in the inner chamber, in the, chamber of, the inner chamber of the soul, there's peace because Christ is there. So inside your house, there's peace. Outside, there is stress. But do you have that peace in the middle of the center? We can experience immediate rest by knowing that in Jesus we are accepted with God. You can feel that now. It's immediately accessible to us. When you come to Christ in faith, you can immediately feel that God loves you and that God accepts you through Christ. We can also experience the ongoing rest of trusting Him. Now, this is harder because it requires a habit. And we'll talk about the practical implications of that. But this could be a reality in your life where you would say, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Every day I'm resting in you. My life is different. I have a different kind of peace. I have a different quality of rest when I do rest. And finally, we can experience the ultimate rest of the eternal Sabbath in His kingdom when Jesus returns in glory and this creation is restored and God rules in perfect justice and love, we will fully experience God's rest. Now that is still coming. We, we get some of it now, but the rest of it is still coming. And the Hebrews' concern is that we might not make it. And the question is, how? How do we appropriate that rest? How do we dwell in that rest? How do we rest in Jesus now? And how do we get to the ultimate rest in God's eternal kingdom? And the answer is very simple. We experience God's rest by faith in Jesus. The refrain is, here's the offer. Here's God's word coming to you. How you respond is going to determine whether you appropriate God's rest. Do you respond to God's promise in faith or do you respond to it in unbelief, disobedience, and rebellion as did the wilderness generation? The word was with faith, the combination of the word and faith gives us rest. The word without faith brings judgment. And this is where we get to that terrifying verse again, verse 12 of chapter 4. The word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Remember the context. You know, verse, verse 12, uh, verse 11 says, strive to enter the rest. Strive to enter the rest. And then it followed up with, the description of God's Word that likens it to a sword. Now, if I, am, if I don't have faith, this should utterly terrify me. Because if I don't have faith and I go under the knife of God's Word that examines my inner being, that can get to the very heart of who I am, that can separate my motivations... What is God going to find if I don't have faith? There is nothing to prevent him from, in his wrath, judging me and preventing me from coming into his rest. If I do have faith, this verse becomes pretty encouraging, which is how most of us use that verse. This, this is a verse used to encourage each other. 
Read the Bible because the Bible will expose things about you. It will get deep into your soul. It will bring out these marvelous insights. That's only, that's only true if you have faith. If you don't have faith, what it's going to expose is going to be terrifying. I was a little hesitant whether I wanted to use this analogy, but I, I will. Okay, so on this gloomy day, it seems completely appropriate. Um, go, go home and read Franz Kafka this afternoon. This is a perfect weather for Kafka. And this illustration comes from Kafka. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's a very strange and powerful, uh, I think he was Austrian, wrote in German, writer. So he has this short story that's called In the Penal Co- Colony, In the Penal Colony. And he describes this, uh, this island uh, of prisoners. And there's this machine, there's a torture machine. This is why he's so weird. So re- read that story. It's Fascinating, but it's so strange. Um, he describes this torture machine that once a prisoner is condemned, the law that he broke is inscribed on his body until the person dies. It's a torture for 12 hours until the person dies. But the inscription is exactly what his guilt is, what his fault is. So this word kills it. This is a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying picture, which you find many in Kafka, but it's a terrifying picture to go under the sword of God's Word without faith. And yet, how many of us do that? Hebrews tells us again and again, it's not enough just to hear the Word. He's saying, who died in the wilderness? So it's the people who heard the Gospel. They saw the miracles. God spoke to them. And yet they rejected it. They didn't add faith to their response. And so they died in the wilderness. This is a warning to us. We can't go to God's Word without faith. It will kill us. It will condemn us. It will make us guilty. But with faith is a totally different deal. As I come with faith to God's Word, and as I read it, and as I hear the Gospel... I am encouraged because anything bad that is discovered in me is right away being dealt with by God's grace. And so I discover sin, but Jesus tells me I paid for that sin. You are no longer guilty. I am rejoicing over you. You are fully accepted in my sight. Why? Because you by faith have connected yourself to me. And in me, this rest is being given freely by grace to you. That's why Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Anybody come to me, in me, through me, by learning to follow me, you will find rest for your souls. Now, what is faith? Go back to the wilderness generation. What did they not believe that prevented them from entering Canaan? They did not believe that the land was theirs by promise, and that God was going to give it to them. It's very simple. God promised that they would be in that land, and if they believed that God would keep His promise, that that land was really theirs by right, by God's promise, they would have entered it. Instead, what they thought is, we can't conquer that. People are too strong. The cities are too big. But God said, I will conquer it for you. I'm giving you this land. You're not earning this land. I'm giving it to you. Go and possess it. 
And you remember all the battles in Joshua's day. This is the next generation. None of them were much, much of a battle, right? You usually went like that. Do the stupidest thing you can so that nobody can claim the victory except for God. That, that was the battle plan, right? You guys walk around like fools around the city and then blow your trumpets. How does, how does God give us victory in Christ? God promises to us, you have a new life in Christ that is yours by right, by promise. Jesus says, you don't have to earn it. I am giving it to you because I have earned it. You don't have to earn acceptance with God. I have earned it, Jesus said. You claim that as true because Jesus tells you it's true. That's faith. Faith is simply accepting the word and saying, I think this is true. When, when Scripture says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our response in faith is, okay. That's all faith is. It's just agreeing with God and saying, this is my by right. I, I am no longer condemned. I have full acceptance with God. Why? Because Jesus told me so. And He did that, and He's given it to me by grace. That's faith. Faith in the gospel. Rest is ours by promise. Jesus has given it to us. The question is, do you believe that? Or are you trying to get that rest by yourself? Now, what do we do with that? I'm going to finish quickly here. What do we do with all that? Two points of application here. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us strive. The word means be eager. Make every effort to enter His rest. Now, it sounds like we're supposed to work for our salvation, but that's not at all what this means. It just tells you to take every chance you can to combine your faith with God's Word. So first, we need to take the warning seriously. And secondly, we need to combine God's Word with, with our faith. But first, we need to take the warning seriously to the point that there's a healthy degree of fear that we must experience. Again, I'm using words that typically are not used in this context, but they are used in Scripture. Typically, we don't want to talk about guilt and fear and those things. But these are biblical concepts, and we need to understand them and apply them properly. So in chapter, in chapter 4, in the beginning, he says, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That means there's a, there's a healthy degree of considering where you are with Christ and being scared that you may not have faith. This fear, one commentator says, the reference is not to paralyze in fear that disables and enervates. The fear commanded here is a, is a stimulus to action, like the fear that motivates mountain climbers to ensure all their equipment is working properly, provoking readers to enter God's rest and stimulating them to believe and obey. The analogy here is, if you're going to climb a mountain, you're going to examine your gear. You're going to make sure that everything is said, everything is right. In our, in our analogy, you're going to make sure that you have faith. You're going to add your faith to the Word. And if you don't find faith, that's concerning. That should worry you. That should make you afraid. Because faith is the only thing that prevents the sword of God's Word from killing you. So as a mountain climber, you examine your gear and you say, do I have faith? 
Am I applying faith to God's word? Again, not works. You're looking into your heart. You're afraid to find unbelieving evil heart there. So how do we do that? We apply our faith to God's word. There's two dimensions individually. We do that, and I'm, I'm in 3, 12, and 13 is that passage, the wording itself. Chapter 3, verse 12. Individually, we are to watch our own hearts. We're to examine ourselves. We are to regularly expose our hearts to God's Word. Now, we talk, again, talk about every Sunday. The discipline of being in God's Word. by Reading it, hearing it, memorizing it, meditating on, on it, studying it. This is a very important discipline. We are to come to God's Word and expose ourselves and say, Okay, let that sword come to me. But I have faith. And so as you do it frequently and often, and you, you're seeing how God's Word works on you, your heart is exposed and you find faith in it. That's the individual approach. There's a community approach too. It says that we are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You are hardened, that's a process, by the deceitfulness of sin. You may not know it's happening to you. But if we bring our community in, if we are in constant fellowship and daily fellowship with other believers, where they can speak to us and we can speak to them, and we lay our hearts bare before them, and God's Word is now being spoken to us by other people, the chance of our hearts hardening and us being deceived by sin are much less. We talk about community a lot. It's not only that we don't want to be lonely. It's because community is an essential means of grace for us to persevere with Christ. We need other people to tell us, I feel like your heart is hard. I feel like maybe you're being deceived by sin. I feel like maybe your faith is faltering. I feel like maybe you're not resting in Christ, but you're trying to earn His acceptance. We need other people to tell us that, and we need to tell it to other people. Otherwise, we may not know. And so the individual discipline is read the Word, be in it, be ex- expose your heart to it, and find faith. Corporate discipline is exhort one another daily. Sunday. That's one in seven days. What is happening the rest of your days? If you're married, do you have the kind of marriage where you're exhorting each other? And that word of God goes out and is met with faith? And we're, we're, we're putting God's promises forward to each other and accepting them in faith? If you have a family, if you have children, is that part of the conversation? Are we exhorting each other in our family life? If you have friends, do you have those kind of relationships with your friends? Maybe your co-workers, if you have Christian co-workers, where the promise of God goes forth and is, is met with faith? If you're a part of a small group, is your small group focused on this? Or is it just a social thing whenever you can make it? Or do you come together and say, we're together to exhort each other, lest some of us are found without faith and we fail to enter His rest? That's the point of community. 
It's not for us to be together, but it's for us to exhort each other so we can persevere in the faith. Real faith is a persevering faith. And it's maintained and cultivated by certain means of grace like Scripture and community. So commit to that. Well, how do I end this? I don't want to end gloomy. But this is a real warning. There's an urgency to it. We have to respond. We, we need to take it seriously. My hope is that anyone here today that opens their heart before God's Word, before this message, the promise of rest, will find faith in their hearts. And we will rejoice that our Jesus, our Savior, has rescued us and is leading us into His ultimate rest. So this is a call to faith. Come to Him in faith. If you're a believer that has been drifting and you've been tempted to fall away, you've been falling away, you've been turning away from Jesus for whatever reason, this is a call to you to return to Him. Rediscover your faith. Reclaim God's promises of rest. And if you're a mature believer who's been walking with Christ and you're doing well, praise God that He has sustained you that He has given you a community to help you, that He has kept you in His Word. Praise Him because all of that is also by grace. And enjoy His rest now and forever.